On this episode of the Sora Learning Lab podcast, I sat down with investor, author, and filmmaker Ted Dintersmith. With a background in education and business, Ted brings his unique insight into the pitfalls of the current education system. We discuss the future and the potential for how business and venture capital could play a meaningful role in the future of education. Thanks for joining us for another episode. This is Sora Learning Lab. Ted, thanks so much for being on the show today. Great to be here. So the first question I like to ask our guests, um, and feel free to go a little into more detail than you think we even care about, because we do care, is just what is your story? What brought you to the field of education? Why is this something that you want to spend your life uh, helping to solve? Well, I think I spent most of my life not thinking that much about it. You know, I spent a lot of years in school. I mean, I was remedial. I was I finally got done with school in grade 21. Uh, you know, so I have no shortage of time in school and, and actually did some teaching in graduate school. So I've got a, a modest amount of teaching background. But I then, you know, rolled into a business career and honestly didn't give it much thought, just sort of assumed, you know, it all made sense. And then when we had kids, you know, the early grades are generally never bollocked up too much. Um, but as they got to middle school, where the learning gets serious, quote unquote, you know, I I went from trusting to concern to maybe alarmed. And when I began to sort of see a total picture of the world as it's going forward, and I had spent my career in innovation. Um, I was in venture capital for years. So I worked with great entrepreneurs and sort of was on, you know, just had a great perspective on cutting edge things that were going to reshape the world going forward. You know, from that career experience, I had a pretty good sense of what kids are going to have to be good at going forward, as well as a pretty good sense of what machine intelligence does. And then I looked at school and I said, it is 100% backwards. School rewards kids for doing exactly what machine intelligence does perfectly instantly. And school is attacking the very competencies and mindsets that kids are going to need going forward. And I, that just sort of jumped out at me. I just said, this is like a code red issue. And so I just sort of dove in full force. Um, we could talk about the things I've done, but I felt like this level of disconnect isn't just a rounding error. This is deeply destabilizing to our society. It is jeopardizing the future of millions of kids and ultimately poses an enormous threat to our democracy. I love that. So that sounds like one core insight you came to from working in venture capital. But how do you think venture capital as a whole prepared you to have just uh, the insights you do about education in general and what you think, if we can get there, the role of the private markets are in helping reshape our education system? Yeah, Garrett, that's a great question. Um, and I do think my venture background has been really helpful here because one of the things that's that's true about startups and entrepreneurs in America, across around the world really, but in America is they run circles around big companies, right? I mean, you know, like, like why is it that these little tiny companies with three people and some money can suddenly, you know, within three, four, five years, put the big companies to shame? Well, it's because the big companies are this command and control model. You know, somebody at the top is telling everybody what they have to do and they're incredibly risk averse. People are more focused on not losing their job than creating something bold, particularly that challenges the existing product base of the big company. 
what's the case in venture capital? Well, nobody's telling entrepreneurs across America what they should do. You know, it really is a model that says, you, entrepreneur, identify something you believe passionately in, and then with support from a surrounding ecosystem, and I was part of that as a venture capitalist, run with your dreams, help that reach its full potential, and ultimately, if you're successful, impart major change in the world. And that really informs how I try to support educators in the field. So I am like the antithesis of top-down, centrally planned, scripted curriculum. It is really supporting innovation in the field, driven by educators, driven by students, with helpful resources and some sense of directionality to it. I love that. Something that struck me in, as just a through line of your, of your books is how the entrepreneurial mindset seems to be almost the core design criteria you're using when talking about schools. And I really think that it's kind of a, a meta thing, but us as Sora, we are also a young company, a, a startup, and I'm lucky enough to get to <laughs> ride this wave and go through this journey. And it is such an educational process for me because of the, you know, the ill-defined parameters, the ambiguity, trying to synthesize synthesize complexity into actionable plans and failure, right? Rapid failure and feedback loops. Um, and it strikes me there's how much this mirrors pedagogically to the ideal learning environments we know. So I'm curious, um, was your experience in venture capital watching these entrepreneurs bang their head against the wall over and over um, instructive for how you thought about the future of schools? Yeah. I mean, I'd start with, you know, one of my keys to success in, in venture capital, well, there are a couple things that I think set me apart. First, it didn't take me too long to become quite skeptical of academic superstars. And, you know, it's not that there aren't exceptions. I mean, there's certainly some great entrepreneurs and great venture capitalists who just excelled in school. But I found that oftentimes the people that were the most interesting to back were the ones that did really well in some things but kind of blew off other things, you know, that had the self-confidence to say, I don't buy that this is an important thing for me to do, and I'm comfortable taking a crappy grade in this course because my self-worth isn't going to be defined by, by my grade point average. And those are the people, by and large, I think, that are the people that have the confidence and the boldness of view to change the world. And so I stopped looking for academic pedigree. I never, oh my gosh, never asked for grade point average or SATs, but I really looked for people that had evidence of doing something that most people would say at the time made no sense and stuck with it and accomplished something important. And, I, you know, I, I think my numbers were pretty darn good. You know, like I, I think I backed 50 early stage companies and 44 ended up being achieving some degree of success. So that's pretty good. Um, and I, the second thing is I never really, this sounds crazy for you know the world of business and start, startups and venture capital. I never read the business plan of the companies I backed. You know, when somebody asked me, what did I want to see in a business plan? I said, almost nothing. You know, it's like, they say, what do you mean? I said, well, if you want to write a business plan, go ahead, but write it for you, not for me. Because what I know is it's going to change a million ways from Sunday. I, I really want to understand what, problem you see or opportunity you see that's unaddressed, why you have a differential advantage in going after it, and why if you can make some early success against milestones, that will lead to an even better opportunity going forward. And if I understand those things and we feel like we could really work well together, 
I will go to the ends of the earth to support you. And, you know, I ended up with being really great friends with all the people I backed, even people I had ended up having to fire, I ended up being good friends with. But, but it was because we kind of were on the same wavelength with that. And I think it's, I think it really reflects this core insight, and it's not my insight, I mean, it's just an insight, but it's that people who have voice in what they want to do, who set bold goals for themselves, will go to the ends of the earth to achieve them and often will blow you away with what they do. And when people are told, here's what you have to do, you have little or no say in it, you probably don't think it makes very much sense, but you need to do it. You'll generally get very disappointing results. And honestly, that tells us the story of United States education. We should be doing the former. We should be inviting kids to have voice in what they want to do. We should be encouraging and supporting them to create bold initiatives. We should be evaluating them to a high standard of actually having accomplished what they set out to accomplish in a way that perhaps wasn't what they initially planned to do, but in a way that they're proud of that had positive impact. But what do we do? We tell them, you got to study this because some <laughs> bureaucratic moron somewhere has decided that, you know, that calculus is the most important thing you can take in high school, even though I can't find an adult in America who does close four minerals by hand. But somebody has said that. So you have no say in it. You got to do it. College admissions officers care about it. Good luck. You know, it's like, and you know, it's like, what do we get? We get, you know, some kids go just fine with that, often bribed by or pushed by their parents. But an awful lot of kids either go rogue, find it boring, doesn't align with their strengths, don't get the support from their parents. You know, the number that are being left behind versus empowered by our current education system, I mean, it's a massive disparity. And, and that's the irony, right? No child left behind, I think, is largely leaving all children behind. And so we need to change that. On that point specifically, it just doesn't make sense. Purely, I think even a lay person reading the initiative and the proposals and the laws that have come around No Child Left Behind, it's impossible for us to think it's truly going to be 100%, right? And we've poured so many resources into this concept of, of uh, the totality of students all being pushed towards the same direction, when in reality, like you're saying, not only is that not realistic, it's not even what, what kids want. Kids don't want to be turned into cookie cutter, uh, you know, the, the same shape as their peers, and they're told that if they don't, if they don't comply, that they're going to be coerced at increasing levels of, of severity. <laughs> yeah, and there's, a, there's an underlying assumption, right, that there's a single dimensional measure uh, that will determine whether a kid is left behind or not left behind, right? And so and that's called test scores. And, and then you start drilling down into that, you realize that these tests because it's all children taking the test so that we can speculatively but, but frustratingly attempt not to leave any child behind, these tests have to be designed on the cheap and have to be designed so they can be scored by computers. And so you end up with these dog's breath of questions on these tests that have nothing to do with an important skill in life. And you ignore the fact that kids have these wide ranges of distinctive, beautiful gifts and talents and for almost all kids, those gifts and talents don't line up with what the test is getting at. Because ultimately, the, the test, you know, in the book I wrote with Tony Wagner, we, we offered this, which I, I'm sure the people in Princeton who designed the test didn't like. But we said, you know, like, if we replaced all of these standardized tests with timed performance on crossword puzzles and Sudoku, 
they would you, you would find the overlap in predictions about anything of consequence to be 100%, right? I mean, the same kids that do well in the SAT would do well in crossword puzzles and Sudoku. And we stopped taking it so seriously. You know, it's like it'd be kind of fun. You know, but but would we ever keep somebody from graduating from high school because they can't do Sudoku puzzles? No. Do we keep kids from graduating from high school because they can't solve simultaneous equations? We do. And, and can the legislators who make that happen solve simultaneous equations? No, they can't. And so there's this huge, I think, failure of the people shoving curriculum and tests down the throats of our school to step back and say, are we shoving something nutritional down their throats? Are we making them binge on, you know, dirt? And, and I think that really because they can't afford to develop and grade nuanced, interesting tests, you know, we're just choking our kids to death on the most, you know, noxious of uh, material. I just pulled up a quote from your book. I believe it was What Schools Can Be. I may, may be mixing them up, but you said across America, our kids study what's easy to test, not what's important to learn. I think that is so ridiculously true. And if we really stop for a second, or here's, here's a funny anecdote that I like to tell, and I'm sure our listeners are, are tired of this, but really if you push educators, or you present them the poor long-term retention of the facts and fragments that they are trying to get across to their students, usually they'll respond with something like, well, school is meant to teach kids how to think, right? Something like that. But in reality, if you audit our assessments, we're really measuring that, the, perhaps we say 5% of of skills that are just easy to quantify and then it's almost like we just forget the 95% of competencies or whatever truly or they even exist right and so it's just such an absurd point that sure measure what since you're a venture capitalist <laughs> measure what matters these sort of I, I do believe that is a concept that that's worthy of close examination but we're simply not measuring what matters so I'm curious yeah. what do you think is the role of quantitative measures of assessment in the future of education? Well, you, you know, there's a difference between measurement and assessment, right? And I, I strongly prefer assessment. And, and I'd say that we really have no trouble in society with micro to micro assessments. You know, if you're thinking about hiring somebody, you know, if you're a good manager, you know how to evaluate their past performance and examples of their work. And the same thing is true with student work, you know, that, it, that informed people can look for evidence that the student has really accomplished something important or learned something in a meaningful way. It, it's when we decide we want to compare, you know, a student in Atlanta to a student in Boise, Idaho, to a student in, you know, the Bronx, that we suddenly convince ourselves that it makes sense to have every student study the same material in preparation for the same test so that then we can do these, you know, ordinal rankings. And what that means is that suddenly everybody's kind of doing a lowest common denominator of often irrelevant, boring curriculum. And, and it's all chasing these, these numbers that give us a false sense of confidence that we know what we're doing. And, and one of the points I make is we've done this now for 25, 30 years, and we've got this massive amount of data that shows us we're making no progress against the wrong goals. You know, so I'm like, right. when do we say, okay, we've made the case that if you keep burying kids in worksheets and drilling, particularly kids in the, the you know, most challenging of circumstances, 
they check out, they're bored with it, and they don't do well. You know, on the on the evaluation front, and one of the things I've begged, and I, if anybody listening is willing to take me up on it, I've got a grant ready to, to spring into action, is, you know, this myth that kids are actually learning something, particularly in middle and high school. You know, we think that they're learning. And in, in my books and in the film Most Likely to Succeed, we highlight this one-time-only experiment that Lawrenceville Academy, super prestigious private school in Princeton, New Jersey, did, to their credit. So I'm not dissing on Lawrenceville. But they took students who had done taken their finals in June, and when they returned in September, without prepping, they said, retake the final. Let's just see how much you retained. And the faculty was nervous about that. And they said, well, you know, like our June finals had some stuff that, that they might not remember because it was a bit low level. We might really, maybe it shouldn't have been in the exam, but it was there and everything else. So they said, fine, take out anything you think they'd forget. Just retest them on the fundamental concepts. And basically the fundamental concepts that you are confident your students, all of your students have retained. That's what they did. Well, the average grade went from a B plus to an F, and not one student across lots of subjects in two years retained all of these concepts that they thought every student retained. And I'd love to see that done on a bigger scale because when we gnash our teeth about learning loss, and I do want to draw a distinction. I think in the early grades, if kids are out of the flow and somebody's not encouraging them to read or reading to them, or they're not gaining some degree of fluency with numbers or not getting a chance to to interact with other kids and get those social and emotional skills, you know, that, that those losses are real. So I'm not, I'm not uh, diminishing the importance of those losses. I think it's back to when we get serious about school in middle and high school, when it becomes subject-oriented, content-oriented, fact-based recall test-oriented. I'm skeptical that many of these kids have learned anything. I think it's all a myth. And, and over and over, I'll ask kids, like, what were the courses you took last semester? Uh, I don't really remember. Like, what were the big points in your history class? Uh, I don't, you know, like, you know, in, in, in the film, you know, in, in it's a, we can give you a link. It's available online for free now. But the Most Likely to Succeed film, which I'm really proud of, that was the way I started this whole effort. You know, we have this great scene where one of the teachers says that their students when they have questions about things, don't want to come in until the day before the test so it stays in their mind for the test, knowing, knowing that if they go in and ask those questions three or four days in advance, they will have forgotten it by the time they get to the test. I mean, you're like, this isn't long-term retention. They we're talking about hours of retention, and we call it learning loss. I mean, like, there is no learning loss if there was never learning in the first place. Yeah, and, totally. And yet, and yet... Yeah. When we learn to do something, you know, if you look at you look at where we get things right in school, like after school activities, you know, if you are running your school newspaper, you will absolutely retain those skills. If you don't work on the newspaper for a summer, you come back in the fall, it's not like, oh my gosh, what is a newspaper? Oh my gosh, how do you write a story? When we really master something, we retain it, which is, you see, with sports, right? You see it with after-school activities. You see it with anything that a kid is passionate about. But what do we do in school? We say, oh, no, no, no. In the regular school day, we don't care what you're passionate about. We don't care what you want to learn. All we care about is what some bureaucrat, the state capitol or in Princeton, New Jersey, thinks you should learn. It's like, how the hell do they know what's the right thing to learn? Because by and large, they are wrong. 
right? It'd be one thing if they were on target, right? But look at the vast wasteland of high school math. I mean, the people designing that have no idea what they're doing. I love that. I was, you sparked a memory, which is, I forget exactly which book this was in, who, who wrote this, but it was basically, we can do a BS filter on exactly how good long-term retention is just by thinking, what do adults know in our society, right? Because nothing that, actually this, this may be Kaplan, now that I come to think of it, but um, Brian Kaplan, but it was the, the notion that if we really say that, oh wow, kids are retaining so much from high school, you can't say that an adult knows the, the upper bounds of what they learned in school and what they retained is what they currently know, right? Or they learned it in addition. But anyway, they can't know more than what they learned in school so and what they retained from school. So he basically does this experiment where he goes out and asks adults basic civics questions. And he's like, okay, then I can tell you that they didn't retain from school nor from the real world really anything of consequence. And there was this study that I believe he highlighted or I came across around the same time this history organization gave the United States population a basic civics exam about branches of government and you know founding stories of our country and I believe it was something like 80% thought they would crush it that they would pass with flying colors and then it was something like over I think it was similar it was like the inverse 80% yeah. failed it outright yeah. so what we're really creating is people who believe they're extremely confident in their retention and, and their abilities from school possibly because we've been awarding them with with grades on nothing of consequence ultimately but in reality no one really retains much from from school at all um, yeah and i think your point not to make this too much of a, a, a you know of a diatribe but your point about we have to be wary then what does what do academic credentials even mean for the people that we're looking to fill our institutions with and I came across the, another study recently by, anyway, some institution that tracks what employers are looking for in recent college graduates. And the top of the list was critical thinking and teamwork, right? And then I think the stat was 57% of, of companies no longer even account for GPA in their process. So the, almost the majority, if not the majority of companies no longer even care about academic coursework because they don't think it correlates with anything meaningful. Yeah. It's absurd. Yeah. Well, you know, in our, in our film, we have uh, Laszlo Bach, who at the time was head of people operations for Google. And Laszlo's really done great things in the world of uh, the intersection between education and, and the workforce. But, you know, Google looked at aspects of somebody's background that were the most important predictors for success at Google. And STEM was 10th. You know, a STEM background was 10th. And, you know, things like being able to ask good questions rank higher. You know, being able to work with other people rank higher. And you start to say, well, you know, wait a minute, right? All the things that Google, which is a super innovative company that, that really only hires amazing people, if what they're valuing is largely pushed to the side in schools, it's like, well, that tells us that ought to be like a code red wake-up call that says we're doing things terribly, terribly wrong. And, and guess what? We are. We are. I want to make one other sub-point, though, on, um, you, you know, back to the, you know, we, we teach kids what's easy to test, not what's important to learn, is in my talks, I love to use, it's a two-minute video, and it's MIT graduates on graduation day, cap and gown, you know, world's most prestigious in engineering institution in the world. And a long-term tenured professor 
produce this little short documentary or video, documentary is an overstatement, but anyway, short video. They approach several of the students and they say, just curious, here's a light bulb wearing a battery. Can you light up the light bulb? And the students are indignant. You know, like I've just graduated from MIT, you know, five on AP Physics, five on AP Calculus BC, 800 in SATs, four years at MIT. I mean, you know, you gotta be, of course I can light up a light bulb with a wired battery, and, and then they can't, they can't. And the point I make is that, that we, have, we have so skewed things toward the, the academic and towards the testable that we've lost any connection to the real world. And, and we've also, I think in an important way, denigrated the more hands-on professions and elevated those who can soar through you know, so, so you look like a physics genius if you can take Coulomb's law or Kirchhoff's law, and if you're given three parameters, you can get the fourth parameter right without making units or math error. And suddenly, oh, this is a genius. This is a physics genius. And, but if you can actually make things work in a building, you know, like, well, do you, do you have a college degree? Oh, well, obviously somebody who's a physics major, particularly from MIT, knows so much more than the master electrician. But I think it's the opposite, right? I think actually everybody should have a lot more of the experience that a master electrician has and a lot less of this symbolic formalism that just is there because it meets the needs of the AP physics exam designers, right? And, and I think that would start to bring a level of balance and degrees of respect across all paths and professions in our society that we could really benefit from. I love that. I believe there's a parallel study, which you reminded me of. My, the problem, main problem I face in my life is remembering fragments of this and not the sources, so apologies. But it was going to physics majors, or it was TAs or something, and they said, here's a very basic problem, but outside of the academic context, it was framed like a real world problem and can you solve it? And the answer almost across the board was no. When you don't do things like, you know, assume fr friction is negligible and, you know, these very academic concepts, it, they were not any better at solving the problem than yeah. uneducated people. And it was, it's, there are similar stories from across the board. And what, I think what you said is, there are certain pedagogies like project-based learning that have proven to be very effective with this, but really it's just the importance of grounding in reality, right? Grounding, having creative synthesizing moments in our education, which are generally not represented at all in our schools. Yeah. And, you know, it gets to the essence of how do we really learn something. And, you know, when you ask adults for experiences in their life where they feel like they really and truly learned something, Almost never did they say it was in a course, particularly not in a lecture-based course with multiple-choice recall-based questions. You know, but you learn by doing. You learn by teaching other people. You learn by debating other people. And and so the question is, why isn't why isn't the core of school based on insights in terms in terms of how we learn instead of the core of school based on the data that come from tests designed on the cheap? And and I think as I think everybody should be looking hard in the mirror and saying, like, how could we have gotten to the point we've gotten to? I'm not sure if we can ever convince politicians in general that these principles of scientific management around quantifying the inputs and outputs are, are, is a bad idea. 
I'm bullish on, at least for reform in public institutions, it's in measuring better things. If we're going to pay lip service to the fact that these competencies that we're trying to create 21st century learners, all these things, why are our tests not even attempting to quantify this? Um, but I'm curious, now that you're, what, six years after uh, most likely to succeed it was, are you more or less hopeful that the system can reform itself? Or are you doubling down on that, that statement that innovation had to be more of a revolution and happened from the outside? You know, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be artfully dodging some aspects of this question because you know what what gives me some optimism? What gives me some optimism? I have seen classrooms change in a matter of days and weeks. I've seen schools change in months. I've seen whole districts, top to bottom, change in two years. And you know, we've gone from the film to you know, I've written a couple books. We've got this whole resource called whatschoolcouldbe.org that is based on a design thinking model. So what are small steps you can take to go from you know, a very traditional approach to education to something more like what you see in the film, but, but without shoving a point of view down people's throats, but really inviting them to sort of visualize where they'd like to go and then provide these supportive, encouraging, safe steps they can take to build confidence and make progress. And, you know, we, we do see things, and it's a growing set of people um, that are doing it, but I'd still say, honestly, it's more in nooks and crannies, and it's definitely not mainstream. And the last 21 months have been very difficult. And I think you're seeing what I think I'm really quite concerned about, you know, and, and you know, I'm a registered voter in Virginia, so I was there for the election. And, you know, you're getting these screaming matches over, you know, books in a library, you know, and I would say like, how many kids in high school check out books in a library, right? You know, like, you know, if you're worried about what a kid can see or read, track the history of their browser, you know, don't ban a book in the library. And, and these things like, you know, this idiot in Florida, Rick DeSantis, who, who, I don't know if you saw that, but earlier this week he's introduced this bill that sort of mirrors the structure of the Texas bill on abortions, where any adult, but particularly parents, who see evidence that a teacher is teaching CRT to students, but that's quite right, vague. Straw man that's quite vague. You know, like, like it. It, you know, like, all, I mean, you know, you could be the cross-country coach saying there's going to be a race next week. And the kid could go home and say this, the adult talked about race issues in school, and suddenly you could have 10 adults suing the teacher, putting their personal details online, deluging them with death threats. I mean, I just wonder what the hell do these people think they're doing, right? I mean, the exact time we desperately need teachers to stay energized and committed, when many, I think, are just saying, like, why am I doing this? This is so difficult. And, and instead of getting support and encouragement, I'm getting wailed on. Or in Florida, I could get sued, and if I lose, I've got to pay all these different litigants and pay their legal. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, it's like you're in a pool drowning, and you say, "I got a great idea. Let's shoot all the lifeguards." You know, it's like. Let's jump into this yeah. point. I, I'm really curious because I've followed you on Twitter for a little while now, and I know who you are—an overtly political guy. And so, what do you make of this current? untenable situation we're putting our, our teachers in and the teacher shortage happening in our public schools and 
do you think that our institutions and laws are going to be able to adapt to this or what's coming down the barrel for this country? Yeah, you know, and I, I do get some some flack and I often agonize because on my Twitter feed, I do make a lot of political statements. I'm actually not when many, you know, I'm not like in the Bernie Sanders AOC crowd. I probably, you know, yeah, I worked on Capitol Hill years ago for a Republican. I'm probably I would say I'm a bold pragmatist, you know, and there are a lot of things on either side I take issue with. And I'm, there are a lot of debates I, I respect and admire. What I'm really, you know, on edge about is ignorance and hypocrisy and a lack of kindness and, and a lack of decency. And, and it's, it's like I don't understand why people aren't angry about this. I don't understand why, you know, and it's personal for me. I mean, you know, my dad... Was dropped out of high school, okay. At age 17, he enlisted in the Navy in 1940, early 44, was immediately shipped to the Pacific Rim, was in six of the ugliest naval exchanges as sort of the lowest rung on the gunnery ladder, you know, was discharged with a, with a nervous breakdown, was a very difficult father, honestly. But holy shit, I mean, you know, like, we had this whole generation of people that put their life on the line to protect our freedom. And then you get these morons that carry these signs around saying freedom because they're opposed to a mask mandate in a school. When, when honestly, I can't find kids who take issue with that. It's the parents that get, you know, and it's like, you know, like, what are you doing? I mean, let's, let's get real about this. It, it's really nutty. Um, but I think it's, it's, will we get through it? I, you know, I, I don't really know, you know, like that's, I mean, I wish I could say, oh, this will pass, or we've seen it like this before, but I can tell you when I worked on Capitol Hill, it, and I worked for several years in the mid 70s, it was nothing like this. You know, like we didn't have these lunatics. You know, we had weird people in office. We had kind of disgusting people in office here and there, but there were a lot of decent people, and there were a lot of friendships with Republicans and Democrats, and there was a lot of shared commitment to solving problems. Now I liken it to, you know, like if you were suddenly found yourself on a football team and you hear the defensive captain saying, let's in practice injure as many offensive players as we can so they look worse this weekend and the crowd boos them more than they boo us. I don't think you'd be betting on that football team to succeed. I think you'd say, man, I am on a loser team and I want to get to a different team because this team's going nowhere. I think that's the United States today. And what will it take for a wake-up call when... You know, I mean, I thought for, for about a day that January 6, 2021 would be that wake-up call where everybody would say, we've lost our senses. You know, like, this is nutty. And, you know, I don't know, it's a, that doesn't seem to happen. But, but I do think that, you know, sort of shifting over, I think the issue around education is, and one of the things we're really focused on right now and trying to get elevate people's attention and priority on this is I, I'm not particularly excited about this debate about should or shouldn't a book be banned or, you know, uh, you know, should we be teach, you know, one side is we should be teaching CRT to three-year-olds and the other side is we should never talk about race in, in the entirety of K through 12. I, I want to get everybody focused on the fact that if we don't really rethink education, most of these kids are going to be screwed. You know, like that's just the reality. If you have right. your creativity, your curiosity, your entrepreneurial spirit, your ability to be agile and redirect your efforts, 
your ability to learn how to learn, your joy about learning, if all those things are purged from you in the course of your school years, you are probably setting yourself up for a total life of misery and failure. And I don't care whether you're in a rich neighborhood or a poor neighborhood. I don't care what your race is. I don't care what aspects of your background we're talking about. If those things are diminished, they're very hard to remediate. They're very hard to resuscitate. And if we don't get this right, if we don't start preparing kids for a future that honestly, these parents that are screaming about banning books have no conception of what it's going to be, it's, you know, it's shame on us, you know, and, and I think the most ironically funny slash depressing thing of that whole fiasco was people who are preaching the importance of diversity and inclusion throughout this process, critical race theory, which totally agree, it's vital, but we were dancing along the edges of people realizing that centralized curriculum, top down curriculum design doesn't make sense, right? It's we're having these conversations and for some reason it's like we have a hammer so everything looks like nails it's how are we going to reform our mandatory requirements around diversity and inclusion how oxymoronic is that how should we standardize our education about diversity and inclusion right yeah. if diversity and inclusion really were important to us we would be embracing differentiated learning paths for our students and you know different uh, spiky student profiles point whatever you want to call it that's what the conversation should become but instead it was everyone is so indoctrinated in this notion of standardizing what our kids learn and, the, and you know, the, the concepts and lexicon we develop in our kids. It, we completely miss the point, in my well, opinion. Yeah, you know, and, and when you look at, and I think that because of Virginia and, and it proved to be so successful, we're going to see so many of our school boards, you know, dragged down by these screaming matches. And, and if once I was screaming that we need to totally reimagine education to better prepare kids for their future, and the other side was screaming that we should at best tinker around the edges because an obsolete curriculum that was designed, you know, over a century ago that worked well in 1950 is still the right thing today. If they were screaming about that, I'd say, let me into that screaming match. I mean, like, I'll, I'll join one side and scream as loud as I can. But it's like what I worry about is as we scream at each other about, you know, page 104 of a book on, you know, some bookshelf that the last time a kid checked it out was three years ago. You know, it's like, you're, you're so missing the point and in the process, just being the world's worst role models for our kids. And, and I think that's where, you know, whether I go after a guy who was in the White House, who I think is the most disgraceful role model for our kids, or for adults screaming without evidence for certain points of view in school board meetings, or waging campaigns and threatening people, unleashing death threats on people. I mean, like, if we can't get anything else right, let's at least be decent role models for our kids, you know, mm -hmm. and, and let's hold our elected officials to the standard of at least being a decent role model for kids. You know, mm -hmm. like, I may get in trouble for this, but let's go there anyway, <laughs> which is I loved something you wrote, which is if an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, it, we might as well view it as an act of war. I think a similar talking point exists for COVID right now, which is if a foreign power came in and killed 800,000 Americans and did trillions of dollars in economic damage, we'd be pretty pissed, yeah. right? <laughs> so what do you think causes this level of complacency, honestly, and feel free to draw parallels between perhaps the two situations of COVID and our horrendously failing education system. Yeah, and the, the quote, so I'm not guilty of plagiarism here, was actually 
directly from A Nation at Risk, which was written in 1983. So that's oh, okay. almost 40 years old. And, you know, and, and the, the problem was that they called attention to the issues, but then their solution was, you know, data-driven, standardized, boring, irrelevant, um, and obsolete. You know, the, the COVID parallel is so interesting, right, is that you, um, it, it's, I think it's putting so many aspects of our society to the test. And it's very difficult. I mean, I, you know, my, my way too many years in school that included you know, way too many years in graduate school, but, you know, I was, I, I did my thesis on the whole topic of, of you know, uh, decision-making and risk preferences and risk tolerance, right? And, and I think it's important for people to step back and say that we're in a situation where individuals' risk profiles relative to COVID are dramatically different. I mean, couldn't be more different. I mean, you could take one family where, you know, a, an elderly, you know, a grandparent's living in the house and they're really exposed and vulnerable and they could be absolutely paranoid about the, the likelihood of, the, of a COVID infection. You have another family where two young parents, young kids, you know, nobody in their universe that they think is facing serious risk. Those are night and day risk profiles. And, and somehow we expect our education policymakers to put forth a policy that everybody's gonna say great. You know, like, well, you know, that's impossible right now. You know, there is no perfect solution and people are going to be grumpy. You know, and I mean, I feel for our education administrators because no matter what you say, somebody's not only going to be not happy with it, they're going to be really angry about it. And, you know, so, so what do you do in those situations? Well, I think in those situations, you need to be more evidence-based and more listening and more innovative because I think one of the things... You know, and, and this is where I think we have a lot to offer. And, and some people have taken us up on it. And I think they've said this was really the difference between great learning and not is, I mean, what do we say? We say, give students voice in their learning. Let them pursue things they're interested in. Equip them with the skills to manage their own learning. Let them go deep. Encourage them to create or produce something that they can show you that they're proud of and give you a sense that they accomplished something to a high standard. Teach other kids. Well, you start to think about those components of education in schools that are open sometimes, closed sometimes, struggling with hybrid models, all this stuff. That's actually great. You know, those foundational elements are exactly what they're going to need as adults, but also help kids continue to learn at remarkably impressive levels, whether, you know, we're dealing with a pandemic or not. And, and I'd add one other point, which is we have this tendency in education to tell our teachers, I'll give you a very specific example that makes the point. Well, we say to our educators, do everything you used to do, but we got a great idea. Do more on top of that, right? So like right. Our, the model, the mindset is that everybody's twiddling their thumbs in classrooms saying, what the heck? You know, we only have half a day worth of stuff. We have no idea what we're going to do with the extra, you know, 97 minutes. And Common Core would be a perfect example. Do everything you used to do, but if we got this great new idea that you should immediately do as well, and by the way, we'll couple it immediately to high-stakes tests, and we'll make it symbolic, academic, college-focused, and, you know, were there some good ideas in it? Yeah. Were there some bad ideas in it? Yeah. Was it rolled out in a disastrous way? Yes. 
And was it based on the idea that you should do everything you used to do and then more with people that are really busy? The things that I just described in terms of giving students more voice, letting them go deep with what they're passionate about, letting them dive into a big, challenging initiative, you know, those actually free up teacher hours because the student's driving their learning, you know, and, and that seems to me to be really powerful. And particularly when those exact skills are what you're going to need to have as an adult. And, and yet you can go easily 16 years in U.S. education and never be empowered to go deep on something you care about, which is shameful. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. I think you make a great point, which is if we tie things to tests and then teachers decide to emphasize their, or at least create a list of priorities to make sure those things occur above and beyond anything else, that shouldn't be surprising to us. In fact, the same story exists with students, which is if you tell them that you have to learn critical thinking skills and all of these things, and I want you to you know, really be self-directed in your learning and, and study and increments leading up to the test. And we tell our students all these things, but if the incentive systems we created don't encourage that, we shouldn't be surprised that these extremely rational humans, these teenagers, these young adults don't do that. That shouldn't be surprising to us, right? The incentive systems we created were all wrong. And so I would just like to draw the parallel that what's happening from teachers in schools is very similar to what's happening with students and the failures are due to a similar cause in the very least. Yeah. You know, back to the film, Most Likely to Succeed. And again, if anybody's listening and hasn't seen it, I'd, I'd love you to watch it. If you love it, give the credit to Greg Whiteley, who directed it. But it was Sundance, AFI, Tribeca, 25 major film festivals. We've done over 10,000 school community screenings over 30 countries. So the reach has been really terrific. My favorite scene in the film, is there are these students in a high-powered school outside of Denver and the, the math teacher and the principal are meeting with these students, and they, they pose this question to the students. I'm not getting it exactly word for word, but it's basically, well, are you here to learn math that can help you be more productive in your life? Or are you here just to get good grades so you can get into the right college? And these students look at the camera, and they're like shocked that any adult would think you actually go to high school to learn. And, and student right. after student says, <laughs> Well, of course, we're just here to get good grades. You know, maybe once we get into college, maybe that's where the learning will happen. But here, it's all about getting grades, you know. And, and the, the teacher and principal are devastated, you know, like they're, and, and the audiences, audiences are devastated. I mean, blood runs out of the faces of the people watching that because they realize that's what we've done to our kids, you know, that. And there was this recent study that said, from the student perspective, they ask students, do your parents care more about your academic achievement or whether you're a good person? 80% of the kids said parents care more about academic achievement. Now the parents would say, uh, it would be the inverse, just as the example we talked about a little while back. The, the parents, would, I'm sure most parents would say, oh, they clearly know I want that, that for them to be a good person. But if the kid thinks that the priority is on academic achievement over being a good person, that's the way they're gonna behave, right? And particularly when the parent, particularly the rich parents, double or triple down with you know, a new iPhone or a BMW if you get a, uh, over a 1500 or SATs or some bullshit like that. And, and you, you see, one of the things that I find is troubling is you know, I'll, I'll run into situations, and there are a lot of places where you'll see a lot of cheating by kids. And 
when you talk to the kids, their viewpoint is this, which is, if it were important, we wouldn't cheat on it. But this is so mindless, like, what's the harm? You know, and my, my metaphor for that is if you said to a kid that to get out of high school, you have to memorize a New York City phone book. You know, if I'm a kid and I looked at how many hours I'd have to spend to memorize, the, you know, like, I'd say, like, that's stupid. And if they're going to ask me, you know, like, five random names and I could look it up, like, I'm going to do that, right? And I think most parents would say, good for you. You're like, good for you. Why? You, nobody in their right mind would spend hour after hour after hour doing something pointless they're never going to use just because some idiot said it was a graduation requirement. But I think kids kind of realize that because they do ask, when am I ever going to use this? They do know that they don't remember anything from the semester before. So they believe that it's largely this mindless set of hoops they got to jump through to please their parents, to look better to college admissions officers, to get a high school degree. And I think in the process, we're just purging the purpose out of our kids. And, and that, I think, is heartbreaking. I think that point cannot be emphasized enough, which is we lose the forest for the trees and we talk about education. And we have to remember, we have to come back to the point that kids are miserable. They don't like school, right? And we're making this choice for them. We're putting them in school. We're locking them up, essentially, in these buildings for their childhood, and they don't want to be there. In fact, uh, again, the, I forget what sources these things in my brain are from, but there was this study of these 20 most common uh, subjective human experiences, right? And they tried to rank them on order of, of um, enjoyment. And what they found was education came second to last, lower than work right and the only thing it was it was above was elder care so that was the depths of woe yeah. apparently but cleaning uh, the, cleaning the to toilet yeah cleaning the toilet bowl on Saturday right. exactly but the what we need to realize then what parents can realize very concretely is that however much you hate your job your kid hates school more right <laughs> and so kids feel like I've been locked in this institution I'm playing this game I'm not enjoying it and I don't see the relevance in it, so I'm just gonna jump through the hoops and play this game as efficiently as possible. And that mindset, I'm a young person, as the, the audience knows, and I still have these extremely explicit, or these, these very impactful memories that still are at the front of my mind about just how little kids, even at the most prestigious universities, care about learning. It's all about whatever gets me the best grade on the test, cramming, cheating cheating is so pervasive even in these top universities it's really hard for i think educators or parents to wrap their heads around the state of current education yeah they don't realize and, and then you look at the contrast right if you if you you know I, I talked to a fair number of university professors and i'll ask them i'm just curious how often does somebody come to see you during office hours because they have a genuine interest in your field of expertise almost never you know, like once every two months, that'd be, you know, that's a good period. You know, I take great heart if you go back and visualize a bunch of four-year-olds, five-year-olds, right? I mean, we don't have to put curiosity into kids. It was there to begin with, right? Th those kids, and I, I always say, when people say, oh, but we got to cover these fundamentals, because if you don't have the fundamentals, you can't really do anything with it. And, you know, it, it's just a, a pitiful excuse for failed curriculum. 
But, you know, I, I say just go talk to a kid that's fascinated about dinosaurs. Are, are they retaining content? I mean, my gosh, you can, you can run across these four and five-year-olds that can spell stegosaurus. You know, like, they know it like the back of their hand. Or a sport. Or insects. Or, you know, action heroes. Or, you know, like, these kids get interested in things. And they master the content. They know the details. And you realize what happened, you know, how, what's the most important priority in learning? It's engagement, right? It, it, and for sure, if you went to a four-year-old and said, you've got to memorize the name of every, you know, this or that, and it was an assignment, and if you didn't do well, you're going to get a bad grade, they'd go, they'd turn into those college kids. They just don't care anymore. You know, and it, it's like, oh my gosh, are kids naturally curious? Yes. Are they naturally creative? Yes. Are they willing to think way outside the box? Yes. We see it in every four and five-year-old we come across. Are they still like that when they're in high school, college? Gone. Largely eradicated, systematically, ruthlessly, on the pursuit of data. Well, wonderfully said. We're out of time, so let's leave it right there. Um, Ted, thank you so much for being on the show. If anyone is particularly inspired by this conversation and wants to investigate more about your work, um, where, should, where should they go? Well, the, the resource that's out there now is what schoolcouldbe.org, and that's got all these great videos. We, we take great pride in the work we do with videos, so it includes, it's got a free link to the film, Most Likely to Succeed, but it's got all these small steps you can take to make progress toward a, a vision of a school that you aspire to. And make a simple example, do we want kids to ask thought-provoking questions? Yes. Do many, particularly in, in the higher grades, ask thought-provoking questions? No. Is time set aside for that? Generally not. So we got this short 15-minute video that says, here's how you do it, with simple things like, don't just say who's got a question. Give kids a couple minutes on their own to come up with questions, and in small groups, trade notes, and then let the group share out those questions. You'll get rid of the embarrassment, the risk of asking a question other kids laugh at, or the grade grubber aspect. So we got a whole series of those, and it's, it's now on a platform. It's sort of like Facebook without the ads or scuzziness. And any school or set of educators that want to set up their own private group can do it. So I'm super excited about that. We have free coaching resources. Everything's free. I mean, I fund the whole thing. Um, and so that, I think, would be really a great thing for people to check out. And um, because innovation is a team sport, it's contagious. And if you can do it and gain some degree of confidence, it's going to get you to a better place. I think it starts to open up lots of possibilities. Better for teachers, better for students, better for the world. Wonderful. I encourage everyone to go explore those resources. Ted and his writing was more than formative, very instructive in the early days of Sora. Um, and I didn't share all the ways that's true, but perhaps in, a, in another conversation, Ted, I can, I can um, convey that sentiment more clearly. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Ted. Yeah. Really enjoyed awesome. it. Awesome.